Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for your word. We're so thankful that out of your grace and out of your love for us, that you have revealed yourself to us and you have spoken everything that we need to know in order to live a life of godliness. We pray that as we look at this passage today from Acts chapter 21, that you would encourage us, that you would equip us, that you would correct us, and that you would train us for righteousness. We pray, Lord, that as we look at this conflict between the Jews and the Apostle Paul, that we would see the larger conflict of which this is only a small example, the larger conflict between you, Jesus, and this world. We pray, Father, that you would give us eyes to see that this conflict is inevitable and that if we are following in your footsteps, just like the Apostle Paul was, we will be rejected and persecuted by this world too. Give us a right expectation of what we will face in this life. Cause us, Father, to be willing to pay whatever price we must pay to follow you. Make us like the Apostle Paul in that regard. Cause us to be resolved to do your will regardless of what it costs us. We pray as well that if we examine our lives and we see that we are not suffering much, that we really don't experience much opposition for the world, that you would, by your Spirit, guide us in self-examination. Help us, Father, to, to understand why that might be the case and to repent of anything we need to. We pray, Lord, that as we look at how Paul deals with the Jewish customs of his day, that you would help us understand that even though the world is opposed to you, culture you are not always opposed to. And we pray, Father, that you would help us to be like you and help us to be like Paul in this regard as well. Help us to understand which aspects of culture are not against you and to not be against them ourselves. We pray, Lord, that you would do that for your glory in us and for the sake of our relationships with people and the cultures here on our mission field. All these things, Lord, we pray for your glory. We pray that you would do this so we might be a people that are more pleasing to you so we can be more conformed to your image. And we pray that you would be glorified during this time of worship too. Help me to preach uh, this passage well. Help us to listen attentively. Um, and by your grace, not only understand what you want us to, to hear from this word, but cause us to actually be changed by it. Cause us to, to do what your word says. Not be hearers only, uh, but to be doers of your word. Uh, we pray that this would be an act of worship that we would express our vowing of you by listening closely to your word and by actually doing what it says. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, good morning. Well, if you're not already in Acts chapter 21, you can go ahead and turn there now. Uh, we're going to be picking up in verse 17, which is where we left off last week. We've been working through the book of Acts, and we've made it all the way to Acts 21. And in this passage, things change permanently for the rest of the book. You're going to see what I mean by that in, in, a, uh, in just a moment. Um, I don't know if this happens to you sometimes, but uh, I know for me occasionally when I'll be watching a movie that I've already seen before, um, I know how it's going to end, but there's still a part of me that hopes it doesn't end that way. That even if I know the problems that the character is going to be facing soon, I hope that somehow they're going to be avoided, even though it's a, a strange thing to hope because they've already seen the movie and the story's already been written and there's no way that the ending's actually going to change. I still feel this tug to hope otherwise. I don't know if that ever happens to you. Uh, Avengers Endgame is, uh, might be one of those movies. Um, if you've seen it uh, before, good. If not, I'm sorry. But uh, spoiler alert, Iron Man dies at the end of the movie. He dies at the end. And it's anticipated uh, throughout other parts of the movie. It's kind of foreshadowed that, yes, he's, you know, he doesn't want to lose what he has. But in saying that, it means he's probably going to lose what he has. But there's still, maybe when you watch it, there's still a part of you that hopes that somehow that's not going to happen. You know, somehow maybe this will be avoided. Um, you feel that, that tug within you to, uh, to hope against that, to hope for the better. But anticipation builds up in the story to that point, and of course the inevitable is inevitable. It still happens. The ending, which we knew was going to happen, happens. Um, as we've been tracking the third missionary journey of our apostle to the Gentiles, we felt the anticipation last week that he was going to suffer. We felt the anticipation of this inevitable end, the end that you just heard read in the passage today. In fact, if you've read the story before, if you've seen this movie before, then you knew for those reasons as well that this end was inevitable. And perhaps as we were considering Paul's uh, situation last week, maybe there was something in you that was hoping, that was tugging for things to be different, that maybe he would somehow escape the suffering after all, but uh, we know from this passage that that was not the case. Paul had set his face towards Jerusalem, to the city of the Jews. And for him, it was the city of destiny, the Jews had become one of Paul's fiercest opponents. 
But as we know, the conflict that's playing out here between Paul and the Jews is, is only a mini-theater of the, of the larger conflict, of the ultimate conflict that's taking place between Christ and the world. And the collision between those two forces is inevitable. Christ in the world is the name of this sermon. And I hope that Acts chapter 21 will illuminate that relationship for us in a couple ways today. First, we're going to see how Paul responds to the Christians who were zealous for Jewish customs. And what we're going to see is that Paul is not against culture. But secondly, we're going to see that the non-believing Jews fiercely opposed this apostle to the Gentiles. And what, of course, is true of Paul as an agent of Christ is also true of Jesus himself. Christ is not against culture, but the world is against Christ. That's the main theme of the sermon today, actually. Christ is not counter-culture, but the world is counter-Christ. We're going to look at each part of that theme this morning. First, we'll consider how Christ is not counter-culture. And then secondly, we'll consider how the world is counter-Christ. So first, Christ is not counter-culture. Now, it might be weird to hear me say that, that Christ is not counter-culture. It's weird because we're so used, I think, to talking about how Christ is countercultural, which he is in many respects. Uh, but it's also important to recognize that by no means is Jesus against culture. He's not counterculture itself. Where am I getting this from the passage? Let's take a look at the text get, uh, together, starting in verse 17. We read that when the missionary team had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. So you'll recall from earlier in Acts, Paul was constrained by the Holy Spirit to go to Jerusalem. We know he wanted to be there by Pentecost. We don't know for sure if he made it on time, but it seems likely that he did. And we also know from Paul's letters that he had desired to bring an offering from the Gentile churches to relieve the poor in the Jerusalem church. It's interesting, Luke doesn't have a focus on that in his book, but he does touch on it briefly in Paul's speech to Governor Felix a few chapters later, but that's not something that he's really focusing on here in this passage. Paul anticipated suffering in Jerusalem. Last week we saw how Agabus prophesied that Paul would be bound and delivered over to the Gentiles. If you'll recall, the brothers urged him not to go, but Paul was resolved to do the will of his king. He was resolved to do what pleased God most. And he's finally there now. In verse 17, we see that he was shown hospitality by an early disciple named Nason. They received him gladly. He was received gladly by the brothers there. And this warm reception is a, an encouraging response, especially in light of all the suffering that they anticipated for Paul. But this initial warmth was definitely not representative of how the Jews would receive him. And it wasn't even representative of how the Christian Jews in Jerusalem would receive him. Verse 18 says, On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. Now James, as you probably know, was the brother of Jesus. He was Jesus' brother. And he had a position of leadership in the Jerusalem church. And we already saw him as an authority back in Acts 15, if you'll recall, when the Jerusalem council gathered together to render a verdict on whether Gentiles had to be circumcised and obey the law of Moses. We saw him as an authority in that decision. When Paul comes before the leadership, what he does is he provides them a detailed update, a detailed missionary report, ministry report of his ministry to the Gentiles. Verse 19 says, After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. So probably specifically he's dealing, detailing out the conversion of the Gentiles for them. Now one small thing I love about this verse, this is just a side point, and it's easy to, to pass over, but look at this verse with me again. It says that he explained the work that, quote, God had done. The work God had done. In other words, the ministry was God's work. It was not Paul's work. It was not his team's work. It was God's work. And then look at what verse 20 says. It says, when they heard it, they glorified Paul. No, when they heard it, they glorified his missionary team. No, it says, when they heard it, they glorified God. What joyous news, right? They hear that the nations are being restored to God. They're, through repentance and faith, they're turning to the Messiah and receiving the salvation that he offers freely to Jew and Gentile alike. And what's their response to this? They praise God. Why? Because all good ministry work is God's ministry work. Good ministry work is God's ministry work. I know this is simple, and it's just a side point, but we would really do well to recognize the same today. God deserves all the credit for any good ministry work that we do. So when you see good work happening, we should glorify God. We should praise him for it. Do you do that? 
First of all, are you aware of the good ministry work that's going on? Even in our own church, do you watch the updates that we send out? Do you read the updates that we send out? If not, you should read them or watch them. They're important. They're important. Paul gave the church in Jerusalem a detailed update on his ministry. But don't just listen to it. Praise God in response to it. Praise him. Take time to praise God for the good work he's doing. How beautiful would it be if we spent more time sharing good reports of his work in our lives and the lives of those around us and glorifying him for it? be a beautiful thing, huh? Moving on, verse 20. It says, The leaders said to Paul, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. In other words, God's been doing a great work among them too. Many Jews have turned to Jesus as Lord and Savior. However, there's a caveat, and it's a concerning caveat for Paul. It says in verse 20 that they are all zealous for the law, the leader said. They are all zealous for the law. In other words, these Jewish Christians still held strongly to the Mosaic law and to their Jewish customs. How is that possible? You say, these are real Christians, real Christians that we're talking about. And obviously, as gospel-believing Jews, they were likely not holding on to the law as a way to attain righteousness. That's very important. For righteousness comes, right, not through the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So they're certainly not holding on to the law as a way to attain righteousness. Instead, they were zealous for the law and for their Jewish customs, likely as an important cultural expression of their Jewish identity. Why would this be concerning for Paul? Well, because there was a false report going around about him. It says in verse 21 that these Christians have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. We don't know where they heard this from, but the lie is that Paul is instructing Jews who are living in Gentile territories to abandon their Jewish customs. Is that what Paul taught? I would say no. What did Paul actually teach? In his letter to the church at Corinth, Paul said this in chapter 7, listen. He said, was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. This is his view. Verse 19, neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Paul taught that circumcision meant nothing for salvation. But he doesn't condemn circumcision. And he doesn't command people to stop doing it. Paul simply taught that adherence to the Jewish customs, like circumcision, weren't necessary. You are free to practice them or not practice them if you want to. That's different from what many Christians in Jerusalem heard about Paul. They heard not just that he was teaching these things were optional. They heard, as the verse says, that Paul was teaching the Jews, quote, to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. They heard that he was opposed to Jewish customs, that he was opposed to adherence to the law, cultural practices which they may have viewed as essential to their identity as Jews. So this puts Paul and the elders in a difficult spot. Verse 22, the leaders ask, what then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. How could they show that Paul was not actually opposed to the Mosaic law or to Jewish customs? What could he do? Verse 23, this is their plan. They say, do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. There were four men who had taken a Nazarite vow. The Nazarite vow was a special way that someone could dedicate themselves to God perhaps for purposes of thanksgiving or purposes of petition. And they would ritually set themselves apart by letting their hair grow, by abstaining from wine or from other strong drink, and by avoiding contact with dead bodies. The traditional length of time for the vow was probably 30 days. And at the end of the vow, their hair would be shaved, and they would burn their hair with their peace offering. And according to number six, their offering would include 
Listen to what number six says. It would include one male lamb a year old without blemish for a burnt offering and one ewe lamb a year old without blemish as a sin offering and one ram without blemish as a peace offering and a basket of unleavened bread, loaves of fine flour mixed with oil and unleavened wafers smeared with oil and their grain offering and their drink offerings. A lot of offerings, right? So these men are nearing the end of the period of their Nazarite vow and the leaders encouraged Paul to do two things. They encouraged him to do two things. Number one, they encouraged him to pay for their offerings. They paying for the expenses of a Nazarite vow was a, uh, an expression of, Jew- it was a Jewish act of piety probably back then. And number two, they encouraged him to undergo a purification ritual himself. Now we don't know exactly what this uh, ritual was that Paul performed. It may have been a purification ritual for returning from territories of foreigners, uh, but we don't know for sure. Uh, the purpose, though, of these two acts is clear. Paying for the Nazarite vows and purifying himself. It was so that, as verse 24 says, all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you. In other words, that these reports are false, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. It was so that everyone could see that Paul is not opposed to the Jewish law. On the contrary, by Paul supporting and engaging in the Jewish customs himself, he was demonstrating that he was sensitive to and even had respect for Jewish cultural customs. Again, not as a way to attain righteousness before God, but as important aspects of Jewish culture at that time. There is nothing wrong with adherence to the Mosaic law in that cultural sense. Someone is free to obey those, uh, the, 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 the law and the traditions if they want to for cultural reasons. It's important to recognize though, that the issue that the leaders were dealing with here was not whether Gentile Christians had to become Jews. That issue was settled by the Jerusalem Council back in Acts 15, and we actually have the decision that the council reached reiterated here in verse 25. Look at verse 25. It says, But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. The council back in Acts 15 concluded that Gentile converts did not have to be circumcised, and they did not have to adhere to Jewish law. But, for the sake of unity in mixed gatherings, Jewish and Gentile gatherings, Gentiles were instructed to respect Jewish dietary sensitivities, and they also called the Gentiles to sexual purity. That was a different issue than what the leaders are addressing here in Acts 21. Like one commentator put it, the question is not whether Gentile Christians had to become Jews. Here the question is whether Jewish Christians had to become like Gentiles in the sense that they had to abandon their Jewish practices. Paul taught no such thing. But because of that misperception, he was advised to set the record straight. And that's what he did. Verse 26 says, Then Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. It seems like Paul's seven-day ritual of purification would coincide with the final seven days of the Nazarite vow, and both of them would end at the same time. So Paul supports those engaged in the Jewish practice of Nazarite vows, and, and he engages in a Jewish purification ritual himself. Both acts were intended to demonstrate that Paul did not oppose adherence to the law or Jewish customs. Instead, he showed respects for them as expressions of Jewish cultural identity. Now, when I use the word culture, what do I mean? Cambridge Dictionary defines culture this way. It says, culture is, quote, the way of life, especially the general customs and beliefs of a particular group of people at a particular time. Right, I'll read it again. It's the way of life, especially the general customs and beliefs of a particular group of people at a particular time. The customs of circumcision and adherence to the law were significant aspects of Jewish culture. They were part of their way of life, and they were expressions of their Jewish identity. This was true for Christian Jews, and this was true for non-Christian Jews alike. For the non-Christian Jews, however, adherence to the law was more than just a cultural custom. Circumcision, for example, was seen as something they had to do 
in order to identify with the covenant people of God and position themselves to receive the old covenant promises. It was something required. But for converts to Christianity, that spiritual significance was now outdated in light of the new covenant. They did not practice those customs with the same meaning it once had for them. They were free to keep the customs if they wanted to, but only as a custom, only as a cultural custom. And as a cultural custom, is there anything about circumcision that is against Christ? Is there anything about being being circumcised that's in any way against Jesus? No, of course not. And so Paul is not against circumcision either or some of the other customs as well. Here's the principle I think we find in this passage when it comes to cultural customs. What's not against Christ, Christ is not against. What's not against Christ, Christ is not against. Christ is not counter-culture in the sense that he's counter-all-culture. He's not against culture in general. He's not against particular groups of people having different ways of life and different customs. Yes, he is countercultural when it comes to certain aspects of a given culture. For example, Christ is countercultural today in many ways. One example is when it comes to the customs that we have in our culture of our beliefs about marriage and sexuality, right? Christ stands against transgenderism. He stands against homosexuality. He stands against sex outside of marriage. Common cultural customs in the place that we live today. However, Christ is not against culture itself. In fact, God is the God of culture. He is glorified in diverse ways that his image bearers collectively express their humanity. So for us, that means if a cultural practice is not against Christ, we shouldn't be against it either. We don't have to practice them all, but we shouldn't condemn them. In fact, like Paul, we may actually choose to engage in certain customs simply for the sake of our relationships with people in that culture, which is what Paul was doing for the Christians living there in Jerusalem. Minimally, I think that we should show sensitivity and respect for those customs, even if we choose not to engage in them ourselves. Now, the application question I have for us is, is simple. Uh, or I say it's a simple question. It might be more difficult to actually answer. But are there any cultural practices here in the United States that we as Christians may be wrongly opposed to? Are there any cultural customs that we may be opposed to? Ways that we, unlike Christ and unlike Paul, may be counter-culture. Perhaps this happens more than you expect. Uh, The examples I thought of, they're probably not, when we think about American culture, these examples I'm going to give you, they're probably not as essential to our identity as Americans as adherence to the law or circumcision were to, to Jewish cultural identity. Not as essential, but they're still aspects of our culture nonetheless. And some of these you may disagree with me on, that's fine. Um, but these uh, application points um, are areas that I think uh, we, we have, they're areas where um, there's aspects of our culture that we as Christians might, uh, might oppose to when perhaps we shouldn't. So first, family life. What, does our, what are some customs related to family life in our culture? Well, in our culture, at least in the place that we live, it's common for mothers and fathers to both work outside the home. It's also very common for them to outsource their children's education, to send them to public school, to send them to private school. That's part of the way of life in our culture for many people. These are things that some Christians, maybe even you, feel very strongly against. Now, please don't misunderstand me. Not all aspects of culture are good by any means. Far from it. Uh, But there are some things that are not inherently against Christ. And if they're not against Christ, we shouldn't be against them either. With regards to the two examples I just gave, yes, it can be sinful for a woman to pursue a career outside the home if it's at the expense of her family and at the expense of her church, at least when she doesn't need to do so in order to sustain their lives. Unfortunately, many of the women here in this area fall into that category. And yes, in this area, Unless parents have no choice, Christians should not send their kids to public school, given all the ungodly things that they'll be taught there. However, this is important, there is nothing inherently evil about sending your kids to school. Whether it be a private school, a good private school, or perhaps if you're in a different area of the country, a public school. And if it's not at the expense of her family and her church, 
There's nothing inherently evil about a woman having a job outside the home. Just because certain cultural norms are often taken to sinful extremes doesn't mean those practices are in and of themselves against Christ. Right? And what's not against Christ, we should not be against. I'll give you a second example. Alcohol. Okay, I went to the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. It's a wonderful school. Probably the best school. I say that because there's people in here that are attending different schools. But it's a, a, an excellent school. Um, but as part of their student covenant, they require their students, and I think their faculty too, to abstain from all alcoholic beverages for the duration of their study, except for communion. They make an exception for, for communion, which is interesting. Now, that makes more sense as a policy for students living on campus, but I think there's real problems with it as an outright prohibition. In our culture, alcohol is enjoyed on a regular basis, and there are certain circumstances, certain occasions, where drinks may be culturally expected. Think of a, uh, a, a wedding toast, champagne at a wedding toast, or maybe wine at an anniversary dinner, or beer at a 4th of July barbecue, times where it's culturally expected. Now, drunkenness is sinful, insobriety is sinful, but drinking alcohol is not sinful. The first miracle Jesus performed was making wine at a wedding, an occasion, a cultural occasion, where wine was culturally expected. As Christians, we're not supposed to throw out customs that aren't inherently against Christ. What's not against Christ, Christ is not against. I'll give you one other one. Holiday celebrations. Holidays are a very significant thing when we think about culture. It always has been. It's funny, I was actually just talking with someone about this last Sunday. Some of you may remember this. Uh, we had a member here uh, years ago who was against Christmas trees. I don't remember why he was against Christmas trees, but he was against Christmas trees. Sometimes holiday practices are opposed because of their pagan origins, which is understandable. Uh, for example, I don't know Many of you uh, might already know this, but many of the major holidays we celebrate in our country have pretty dark pagan origins. Christmas, for example, on the, the celebration of Christmas on December 25th may have had connections originally to the pagan Roman celebration of Saturnalia. Disgusting stuff. Should we be against it? It's a major cultural holiday. I would say that today, even if that history is true, the vast majority of people in our culture who celebrate Christmas probably aren't aware of that. Right? And whatever significance it may have had then, I would say it doesn't matter because it doesn't have that for the Christians celebrating it now. In other words, when Christians in America celebrate Christmas on December 25th, or when they set up a Christmas tree, or when they go Christmas caroling, or when they eat gingerbread cookies, or when they give each other gifts, even if they're not doing anything that's positively about Christ, they're probably not doing anything that's against Christ. Are those customs in and of themselves inherently evil? Is there anything inherently evil about setting up a Christmas tree? In other words, a, a green tree and putting lights on it and presents underneath? Is that in and of itself evil? I would say no. Does it mean something evil for the people who are practicing it? Probably not. Then just like circumcision for the Jews, what's not against Christ, Christ is not against. And in fact, like Paul you may choose to engage in some of these customs to help show that you're not against that culture too. You might want to buy your neighbor a Christmas gift this year to show that you are, not only to, to show your affection for him, but that you're not anti-culture. You don't have to, but it might just serve relational purposes that glorify God. Now, does that mean all holidays are fair game? Of course not. Uh, there are some cultural holidays that are more complicated, like Halloween, for example. I would say it's more complicated because some of the customs themselves are evil and some of what it means to people today are evil. I'm not talking about what it used to mean. In my opinion, that doesn't matter much even though that's, that's bad too. I'm talking about in terms of what the celebrations actually mean for people today. Um, perhaps there's room for Christians to retain some activities. I don't know. We could talk about that more. Um, but the question that ought to guide us is the same. Is this against Christ? Is this against Christ? Now, for each of these areas of culture, whether it be customs related to family life or alcohol consumption or holiday celebrations or anything else, when Christians oppose these customs, they typically do so with good intentions, right? They believe there's something about them that's dishonoring to Christ. And the question we have to honestly ask ourselves is, is this act or practice inherently evil? And if not, then does it mean anything evil to the people who are practicing it? The answer to both those questions is no, then I would say just like circumcision 
And just like adherence to the Mosaic law in Jewish culture, what's not against Christ, Christ is not against. So being a Christian does not mean being counterculture. The Christian Jews thought Paul was teaching they had to abandon Jewish cultural customs and live like non-Jews. He wasn't teaching that. Christians today don't have to abandon their cultural customs if their customs aren't against Christ. That means in America, Christians don't always have to homeschool their kids, keep their wife at home, request sparkling cider for the wedding toast, and see celebrating major holidays. Right? They don't have to abandon all aspects of their culture. Many aspects they will have to reject, but not all. Not all. So point number one, Christ is not counterculture. However, we do see a form of opposition leaping off the page in this passage. It's not between Paul and the cultural customs of Jewish Christians. It's between Paul and the non-believing Jews. As I mentioned earlier, this conflict ultimately is a stage for the greater conflict between Christ and the world. So point number two, the world is counter-Christ. Verse 27, look at the passage with me. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him. Notice this trouble isn't caused by the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem, but from the Jews of Asia. Asia, as you probably know, is not referring to what we call the continent of Asia today. It's referring to the Roman province of Asia, uh, much of which is located in modern-day modern uh, western Turkey. Uh, some of these Jews may have come to Jerusalem for Pentecost. Uh, the specific cities that they were from aren't listed, but some of them were likely from Ephesus, which was the largest city in Asia at the time. And Ephesus, if you recall, was where Paul's companions had been rioted back in Acts chapter 19, if you remember that. The angry crowd there was stirred up by Demetrius, the silversmith, who was frustrated by the impact that Paul's ministry was having on the industry of Artemian worship in Ephesus. And uh, here, though, it's not the pagans who are stirring up the crowd. It's the Jews from out of town that are stirring up the crowd. Paul hasn't been in Jerusalem long. It hasn't even been two weeks, and the, perse- uh, the persecution that we anticipated has already begun for him. Like I mentioned in the beginning of the sermon, this is the inevitable end that we knew was coming. We see the end of this movie fast approaching, and as we see it, our stomach ought to start to sink. The Jews see him in the temple. They stir up the crowd, and they seize him, verse 28, crying out, Men of Israel, help! Or as one put it, Men of Israel, come to the rescue! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. It says he's teaching everyone everywhere. That means Jew and Gentile alike. He's teaching people against our people, number one. He's teaching them against our law, number two. And he's teaching them against this sacred place, against the temple, number three. Just like Stephen, in Acts chapter 6, Paul is accused of speaking against the law and against the temple. Now perhaps this resulted from Paul's teaching about how the gospel impacts our relationship to the Mosaic law or to temple worship. Um, And maybe they were seeing it as opposing the significance that they placed on those things. Um, But not only that, If they understood him, his teaching could have also opposed the value that they ascribed to themselves as Jews. Maybe for them, Paul's teaching that the Gentiles could become God's people without becoming Jews, in the sense that they understood being a Jew. That teaching could have opposed their sense of value and significance as people, as Jews. Or it's possible, too, that the Jews were misunderstanding or misrepresenting Paul here. At any rate, the Jews are claiming that Paul is teaching everyone against the Jewish people, And these two things that they esteem so highly, the law and the temple. It doesn't help that at this time, uh, Jewish nationalistic sentiments may have been current, uh, which makes it easier to see how a perceived attack on Jewish identity could be met with such emotion and such opposition. Jerusalem is the city of the Jews. And we can see that it's a very dangerous place for a man like Paul who is now seen as an enemy of the Jews. And as if that's not enough, They accuse him of something else, something which may instigate the crowd more than either of these two accusations. Verse 28, they say, Moreover, Paul even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. The implication here by Luke is that Paul did not actually do this. 
But the Jews falsely assumed or falsely accused Paul of bringing a non-Jew into the temple. Why would this be a problem? Well, the temple area was divided into successively restricted areas. There was the outer court, or the court of the Gentiles, where non-Jews were permitted. And then there was the temple proper. Only Jews were allowed to enter the temple proper. Beyond that, once you entered the temple, there was what was called the courtyard of women. And then beyond that, there was the court of Israel. Only men were permitted into there. And then beyond that, there was the court of priests, where the priests would perform their duties. And within that courtyard, there was the temple building itself. And of course, inside the temple, you had the holy place. And then right beyond the holy place was the most holy place, the holy of holies, where the high priest would only enter once a year on the day of atonement. These, res- these successively restricted areas were, were a way of reflecting the sacredness as you got closer and closer to the most holy place, which was seen as the dwelling place of God. Non-Jews were not allowed beyond the courtyard of the Gentiles. They were not allowed into the temple proper. That was part of how the sacredness of the temple was guarded. Doing so would have violated the sacredness of the place. And that's why they say, that Paul, quote, even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. He's defiled this holy place. They were so serious about keeping non-Jews out of the temple that there was actually a dividing line, a four and a half foot high barrier that helped mark off the courtyard of the, of the Gentiles from the first part of the temple proper. And there were inscriptions, warning signs, that said written in Latin and Greek, as one translation put it, Quote, no one of another nation may enter within the fence and enclosure around the temple. Whoever is caught shall have himself to blame that his death ensues. And the amazing thing is it seems like the Romans had even given the Jews authority to kill anyone, including Roman citizens, who violated this. So you see the gravity of what Paul's dealing with here. He's accused of teaching against the Jewish people the law they revered, and their sacred temple. And on top of that, he's accused of defiling the temple in a manner deserving death. What's the result? The people lose it. The crowd goes ballistic, and the situation becomes very hostile very quickly. Verse 20 says then, or sorry, verse 30 says, then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. Jerusalem, the city, is in an uproar over this man. You can just picture Paul, he's, he's looking around and he's hearing these Jews crying out these things about him or shouting out these things to the crowd and he sees the crowd start to, start to turn against them. He sees people's faces. He sees their faces full of anger, full of fury, full of horror, full of disgust. The emotion in the air for him is, is tense. And then someone makes a first move of aggression and others pile in on him And word gets out, it's spreading through the city. Tons of people start showing up. They start rushing together like a raging river to deal with this monstrosity, this man, Paul. And some of them, it says, actually grab onto Paul. Not gently. They grabbed onto him and they dragged him out of the temple. Just think about that for a second. Paul is in the temple and they're grabbing him and dragging him, dragging him out of the temple. Verse 30, it says, They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. Luke adds this detail that at once the gates were shut. This is probably referring to the gates entering the first area of the temple proper. So Paul's being dragged out here into the courtyard of the Gentiles. Maybe they shut the doors to secure the area, or maybe they were doing it to prevent the temple from being defiled even more, perhaps by the shedding of Paul's blood. Some commentators suggest that this statement about the doors may be full of symbolic significance for us. Perhaps as one suggested, it signifies the end of the temple building and the purposes and plans of God. The gates are closed now. The doors are shut. Christianity is on the outside, and the temple, perhaps along with the official Judaism that it represents, is closed off from the new working of God in the world through the Holy Spirit. And Paul the messenger of the gospel, finds himself now prey to an emotionally charged crowd, beating him, beating him in the temple courtyard, seeking to take his life. What a horrible scene. Horrible scene. 
Verse 31, as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. Adjacent to the northwest side of the temple area, there was a military barracks. It was called the Fortress Antonia. And there were two different flights of stairs going down from the fortress into the courtyard, into the outer courtyard where Paul was being beaten. And news of the city in chaos came to the commander of the soldiers there. We actually know his name was Claudius Lysias from later on in the book of Acts. He continues to play a role. And the tribune, Claudius, was over a thousand troops stationed there. Probably 760 of them were foot soldiers. The other 240 were cavalry. And verse 32 says that Claudius at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. So the commander descends the steps from the fortress into the courtyard. And since he brought a couple centurions with him, each of which probably had about 80 men or so, there may have been six, uh, over 150 Roman soldiers entering the scene. Quite a show of force. Verse 32 says that when the Jews saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. And the tribune came up and arrested Paul and ordered him to be bound with two chains. They may have chained him to two different soldiers. And here in verse 33, we likely find the fulfillment of Agabus's prophecy. Not necessarily in the literal sense that Paul's hands and feet were actually bound, but in the sense that as a result of the Jews, Paul is bound and taken into Gentile custody. Our apostle is bound from this point forward in the book. He is never, in the book of Acts, he is never a free man again. He may be free after the events in Acts, but the rest of the book knows him as a prisoner. Verse 33, Claudius, the commander, inquired who Paul was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. He was trying to get a bearing on the situation. Who is he? What did he do? Why is he being rioted? But the people, as you can imagine, are shouting out different things left and right. What else would you expect from an emotionally charged mob like that? The city is in an uproar. And he's not getting the answers that he's looking for. So he orders Paul to be taken back into the fortress Antonia. Verse 35 says that when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. The crowd was so out of hand It was so violent that Paul was carried by the soldiers, possibly for his own protection. Did the church expect this kind of opposition for Paul? Maybe not. If not, then they should have, and the church still should. Listen to what Luke says next. This is amazing. Verse 36, For the mob of the people followed, crying out, Away with him! Away with him! Does that phrase ring a bell for you at all? Away with him? Paul is being rejected by an infuriated Jewish crowd in the city of Jerusalem in a similar way to someone else we know. In fact, the Greek phrase is very similar to the phrase we find in Luke chapter 23 where an infuriated Jewish crowd in the city of Jerusalem shouted out, away with this man to someone else. To who? To Jesus Remember Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, after examining Jesus, he called everyone together and he said that he found Jesus not guilty, not guilty of any of the charges that the Jews had leveled against him. Like Paul, Jesus was innocent. Pilate stated that Jesus did not deserve to die. He said he'd have Jesus punished and then he'd release him. How did the Jewish crowd take that? Luke 23, verses 18 through 19 They all cried out together, away with this man, and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. They said, rid us of Jesus. And not only that, but in keeping with the custom of releasing a prisoner, give us Barabbas instead. Release an insurrectionist and a murderer to us instead. Verse 20, Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus. But they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. A third time, Pilate said to them, why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, 
demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. Luke says their voices prevailed. The infuriated Jewish crowd shouted loud enough and they shouted long enough to thwart the demands of justice and to see their wicked will accomplished against Jesus. Verse 24, Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder. He released Barabbas for whom they had asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. The worldly crowd got what they wanted. Jesus was taken away. But their will, praise God, was not outside of God's sovereign will. And in the breathtaking wisdom of God, their vile opposition to Jesus was part of how God accomplished his redemptive purposes. In fact, centuries before, it was said of this, it was said of the Messiah this in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 8. Isaiah said, quote, By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. He prophesied that the Messiah would be taken away, which is exactly what the people cried out. Take him away, take him away, and their voices prevailed. That their prevailing was part of God's redemptive plan. For as Isaiah prophesied in the exact same verse, he said, quote, As for his generation, the Messiah's generation, who consider that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? Who considered that? Why was he cut off? Isaiah says, why was he stricken? It was for the transgression of God's people. He was struck for the sins of God's people. The world cried out, for Jesus to be taken away. But when Jesus was taken away, the wicked world wasn't just getting what it wanted. God was saving the world. He was saving wicked people. Saving wicked people just like the ones who were calling out for him to be killed. He was taking the fall for their transgressions. He was taking the fall for Barabbases, for insurrectionists, for murderers just like you and just like me. He was taking the fall for coveters and for liars and for thieves and for the sexually immoral and for the angry and for the impatient and for the self-centered and for the self-glorifying. He was taking the fall so that sinners like you and like me could go free, so that Barabbases could go free, so that we could escape the cross that we deserved, which was not just a cross of rejection by men, but signified rejection by God himself forever in hell. That's what Jesus took. Jesus was taken away so that you could be brought in. He was taken away so that you, a sinner, who desired like the crowd in Jerusalem for him to be taken away, you could actually be brought into God's family as a son or daughter of God through Jesus' death and resurrection. He was taken away so that all who repent and trust in him can be brought in, brought in now and brought in forever. However, there is a cost to following Jesus. It is a cost worth paying, infinitely worth paying, but it is still a cost nonetheless. And the cost is this. If you follow the one who is taken away by the world, you will be taken away with him. If you follow the one who is taken away by the world, you will be taken away with him. The world was counter Paul because the world is counter Christ. Okay, and if you follow Jesus, the world will be counter you. The world will be counter Tina and counter John and counter Dave. Paul put it plainly in 2 Timothy 3.2 when he said, listen, quote, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Count on it. Expect it. The Jews were God's covenant people in the Old Testament. But apart from Christ, they were still of this world. And the purposes of this world are diametrically opposed to the purposes of God. All who are at odds with the world should expect misunderstanding. They should expect malice, not unlike what Paul faced and not unlike what Jesus faced. Expect it. The world is counter Christ. I'll ask this question in closing. Do you experience that in your life? The world doesn't have to be crying out, take him away, but you should experience at least some pushback. Do you feel any pushback for the things that you say or do? Pushback from your family. Pushback from your friends. Pushback from people in this community. 
If not, what does that mean? Christians should not be able to live a suffering-free life. It's not possible for a Christian. We should never look for opposition. Far from it, that's not what I'm saying. But following Jesus in a counter-Christ world means persecution. It means opposition. Our beloved apostles' suffering in Jerusalem did not come upon us by surprise. Perhaps it was more startling than we had anticipated. The degree of it was more startling, but the fact of it was not. It was like the movie that we've seen before. We hoped this wouldn't happen, but we knew the whole time that it would. And this passage, I hope, for us clarifies two things about the relationship between Christ and the world. The first thing that we saw in this passage is that Christ is not opposed to culture. We saw that through Paul's support of Jewish cultural customs. And in aspects of our culture that aren't against Christ, in aspects of our culture that are against Christ, rather, we must be countercultural. But what's not against Christ, Christ is not against. Secondly, we saw the world, the world, is opposed to Christ. We saw that through the Jews' fierce opposition of Paul. And I can promise you this, if the world is counter Christ, it will be counter you too. Expect to be misunderstood and treated maliciously by the world. Being taken away by the world is a cost for following the Savior who was taken away for you. It's a cost that we must count and pay. Christ is not counterculture, but the world is counter Christ. Christ is not counterculture, but the world is counter Christ. And what is true of Christ should be true of his church. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father, we pray that you would make us willing, like the Apostle Paul, to pay any price that we must pay as we follow you. Please, Father, cause us to have a right expectation of what we will face in this world as Christians, to see that the world is opposed to you, and that if you have taken us out of the world, that it will be opposed to us. Please, Father, give us strength to endure whatever opposition we must face And cause us, Father, to examine our lives. If we're not facing any opposition, please help us to understand what that means. Are we not following you well? Do we not even know you in the first place? If the latter, I pray that we would turn from all of our sin and trust in you alone today. That you would be taken away for us so that we can be brought in. We thank you so much, Jesus, for your sacrifice. For being willing to be taken away so that you could bring us in now and forever. Pray, Father, that we would be willing to be taken away just like Paul was and just like you were for the sake of following you and having you. We pray as well that just as you are not against culture, that we would not be against culture either, that you would give us discernment to know what things are against you and what things are not against you. And by your grace, help us to uh, to glorify you by supporting and participating in cultural customs which might help us, like Paul, build good relationships with people here in our culture. We pray all of these things for your glory. We ask that you would do this out of your love for us. We ask that you would do it out of your love for all of those that will be blessed by us being more conformed to your image in these two respects. All these things we pray in your name. Amen.